Sunday morning when uh, coming out and um, about this year's election and voting, I would encourage you to vote, to exercise um, the privilege to be able to vote and, um, and to look at the issues and vote how the Lord leads you in doing that. Um, I think that it's important for us to, to do that, to be looking at the issues and, uh, and voting uh, for our future leaders and be praying for our nation. And we will be praying tonight for our nation when we finish our uh, Bible study. So prayer, um, you know, you make the uh, decision, you look at the issues. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I am going to encourage you to vote. And, um, and to look at it very seriously and to think about your vote, how it is going to, you know, we want to best that we can uh, to vote for the future of our nation and for, you know, the local election as well. So that's all I'm going to say about that. So we'll be praying about that. And then we got to, after that, the holidays, they'll be coming up. And um, one of the things that we are going to do, we'll get it out the schedule next month for the uh, Christmas uh, um, you know, uh, Christmas Eve services and all that. At the end of the year, one of the things that we are going to do is on New Year's Eve, we're going to do a prophecy update. And uh, so um, that's something that uh, I feel like we need to, particularly as we close this year, be looking at the things that um, pertain to Bible prophecy, um, the things to be looking for uh, in 2013, because there's a lot going on. And, uh, and once in a while we talk about it as we've been going through First Kings, and uh, kind of updating you on some things. But, of course, the Middle East is very fragile right now, very unstable. Um, even today in Syria, some mortars ended up hitting inside of Turkey and killing some people. So Turkey attacked Syria um, or, you know, retaliated. Um, and um, so um, the conflict in Syria is even beginning to uh, spill over the borders. I don't know if any of you have heard, you won't hear in our uh, newspapers, but even some of the fighting has spilled over into Israel and um, up in the Golan Heights. Those of you who have been with us in our tour of Israel, we go up in the Golan Heights and we look over the valley that we're right on the border of Israel and Syria, and we look in the valley that leads up to Damascus, and Paul would walk up that valley on his way to Damascus, and that's where he was converted. But we're right there, and there's a couple villages right there. You can see the Syrian flags and everything. They evacuated all of that area, so you can't even go in there now because um, of mortars and shells coming into over the border. So Israel is giving warning. So all of that has taken place, of course, uh, with the UN General Assembly last week. Uh, the president of Iran is reiterating um, his desire and for the, the Ayatollahs of Iran to destroy Israel, and Benjamin Netanyahu has put a red line, and he told the world where the red line is, and so um, coming up next spring, a lot are wondering if Iran does not back off from its nuclear ambitions, if war is going to break out, and uh, so we're going to look at all of that, and uh, so something to look forward to. But the Lord may come back before then, so we won't even have to worry about it, so, um, but if he tarries, uh, then We'll have that prophecy update. But tonight we do want to get into 1 Kings chapter 21 and, um, and continue our Bible study in this book of 1 Kings. Uh, we are looking at that time in the history of uh, the house of Israel where over the last few chapters, since chapter 16, the emphasis has been on the northern kingdom of the ten northern tribes of Israel and Ahab, who is the king presently uh, at uh, this time that we're looking at, 1 Kings chapter 21. And we know that the house of Israel is struggling spiritually because uh, there is idol worship. 
We also know that it's gone from bad to worse, from Jeroboam to Ahab. Ahab has provoked the people to really uh, be involved in Baal worship. And in Samaria, which is the capital of the ten northern tribes right now, we know that Ahab built a temple there dedicated to Baal. And so Ahab is a very wicked king. Uh, He has plunged the nation deep into Baal worship. And his wife Jezebel, she is also a very evil individual who has killed the prophets, uh, the sons of the prophets, uh, who desired to kill Elijah, threatened him. And we're going to see that these two, this demonic duo, is going to continue in their rebellion against God. But here's the thing. As we have seen over the last few weeks in studying these chapters, God in his mercy and in his grace, his hand of mercy and grace has been extended out to Ahab here, the king of Israel. And he has been showing Ahab that truly that he is the Lord. You recall that in chapter 18 that it was Elijah that uh, challenged the issue to the prophets of Baal. And uh, it was the prophets of Baal that made their altar and, and laid a sacrifice on it there on Mount Carmel, called out to the God of Baal, and there was no answer. And they called out all day long. They were yelling, they were screaming, they were working themselves up in a frenzy, but yet the God of Baal did not answer because he's not real. And then in the evening sacrifice, we know that it was Elijah, as he prepared the sacrifice and put it on the altar, that he made a simple prayer and this dramatic uh, fire that would come from heaven came down and consumed the sacrifice and the wood of the sacrifice. And the people shouted, the Lord is God. And, and the Lord was showing Ahab and the people of Israel that the Lord truly that he is God. But yet Ahab did not repent and he did not turn to the Lord. We know that it was last week in chapter 20 that it was the Syrians that surrounded Samaria, besieged it, and it was the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, that made those threats against uh, Ahab, said that whatever is yours is mine, and it was Ahab that would end up going to war against Syria. And the prophet of God came to Ahab and said that, Ahab, you're not going to be defeated. And God, out of his sovereignty and grace, at that time, chose not to let Israel be defeated. But it was Ahab that would see the Lord in his strength and in his power that would deliver the children of Israel, or that is the the house of Israel, um, of great victory, even though they were greatly outnumbered. He defeated Uh, the Syrian king and their armies. And Ahab saw the power of God and God working uh, uh, on behalf of the house of Israel. And not only once, but twice. And yet Ahab, seeing God in his mercy and grace and God working and showing himself to be true, yet he still refuses to turn to the Lord and refuses to repent. So we're going to see that Ahab and his wife Jezebel, that their rebellion against God is going to continue in chapter 21 as we read, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. So here is Ahab. He's in um, the valley of Jezreel, which is in northern Israel. It's a very beautiful place, a very fertile place. And next to his palace, there is a vineyard that belongs to Naboth. And it is Ahab, this powerful king, that looks out and he sees that vineyard. Um, It would be very valuable, of course. Um, It's interesting today, 2,500 years later, 
that in that valley, as you stand on Mount Carmel and you look out, there is the Valley of Jezreel. It's very fertile. Uh, it's a wonderful agricultural area. They grow wheat there. They have greenhouses there where they grow flowers and they grow uh, tulips. And it's interesting to be in that valley if you happen to be in Israel. And if you're in that valley, especially on the Sabbat, there's all these flower stands that are all over the place. And you can stop and soldiers are going home and they're buying flowers for their wives and for their moms and for their families. And you can get a dozen fresh cut uh, roses for three bucks. And uh, so it's just a neat area, a very beautiful area. As you look to the west, you're looking at the Mediterranean Sea. As you look to the east, you're looking at the Samaritan Mountains, and you're looking at Mount Tabor, and you're looking at Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa was the mountain that Saul, the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, at the end of 1 Samuel, he was killed on that mountain along with his son Jonathan. You're looking at Mount Gilboa, you're looking at Nazareth that is up there on the hillsides, and you're looking south towards Jerusalem and this is valley that is very very fertile and of course also in part of that valley you look and you see nearby is Megiddo and of course it is also named the Valley of Megiddo so here is this valley and it's very fertile and even today there's vineyards that are there and uh, very valuable land and here's Naboth he has this vineyard and Ahab he wants it this powerful king who has just about everything he has the ten in northern tribes and in inheritance and he is one that now wants his neighbor's land and so Ahab spoke in verse 2 to Naboth saying give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house and for I will give you a vineyard better than it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you inheritance of my fathers to you. So he wants it. He goes and speaks to Naboth. Naboth says, No, I can't sell my land. And, and here is uh, Ahab. He gives, you know, uh, he says, I want it for a vegetable garden. And I will pay you for your vineyard or give you another one that is even better. Now, a couple things here. What Ahab is wanting to do really isn't very logical, is it? I mean, really? Do you want to take this valuable land that's a vineyard and you want to turn it into a vegetable garden? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But here is a man that he's not right with God. And when we see those in the world that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can see the decisions that they make and the things that they want and the things that they pursue, and we can look at it and think that isn't logical. And that's exactly what's happening here with, um, with uh, Ahab. He wants this vineyard, this valuable land, so he can have a vegetable garden. He's willing to pay for it. He's willing to even give uh, another vineyard to Naboth that's even, even more valuable. What is his reasoning? We don't know, except that he is not content, except that uh, he is committing, you know, uh, to where that uh, he's uh, coveting his neighbor's, you know, land, and he wants it, and, uh, and Naboth refuses. And it isn't that Naboth is being unreasonable, hoping that he'll raise his prices or, you know, whatever it is. Naboth is saying, this is our family's inheritance, and God forbid that I should do this. This would be sin for me to sell this land. Because in ancient Israel, you know, inheritance was everything. You recall that when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land, that they divided the land into the 12 allotments for each of, 
of the 12 tribes of Israel. They got, you know, each tribe got an allotment of land. And then each family would have, an, you know, their portion given to them as well. And so that land that they would have, that was their inheritance that they would pass on to their family, to their sons and to their sons' sons. And to lose that land was um, something that um, was very much uh, uh, very hard to do. But if you did, God put in provision for there to be a kinsman redeemer, for it to go back into the family, or for that family to redeem that land. Because inheritance was everything. They continued to give that land, that, that allotment that God had given to their family to continue through the family line. And so he says, God forbid, I'm not going to do this. You're not going to have my inheritance, even though you're offering me a better vineyard or, or you're offering me good money for this. And it is the reaction, as we see um, in verse 3, um, that Naboth, he says that. Then in verse 4, so Ahab went to his house, sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat food. So we see here that this mighty king, the one who's ru ruling over the house of Israel, he doesn't get his vegetable garden. So what does he do? He goes home and he pouts. He begins to cry like a baby. And he's acting like a spoiled little kid, isn't he? I mean, that's what little kids do when they don't get their way. They'll go home, you know how it is, parents, they'll run up in their room, bury their heads in their pillow, start to cry, I'm not going to come out and eat ever again, and all of this. And this is what Ahab is doing. And again, that we see here that Ahab, this mighty king, that he's not content, um, he wants his neighbor's land, and we know that the Bible talks a whole lot about you and me as Christians, that we are to learn to be content. And, and I think this is a big one, folks, because Paul would write in his letters that I learned to be content. I learned to be content in when I had much and, and when I was lacking, when I was rich and when I was poor. But he learned to be content. And that's something that I hope that you and I as Christians, that we would learn to be content because we live in a society where, you know, we always uh, hear the message um, of that you're not going to be happy unless you have this thing or, you know, that you pursue this or whatever it might be. It is going to be the commercials that are going to be coming on here in just a few days telling us that if you want to have a Merry Christmas, then you need to have, you know, these toys for your kids. You need to have these things. And we look at it and we get bombarded by Madison Avenue, you know, on all these things that we need to have if you really want to be happy in life. And the thing is, we need to learn as Christians to be content. And think about it, folks. I mean, we have everything. We have Jesus Christ. He's our inheritance. And he has given us eternal life. And we're forgiven of sin. And whether he's blessed you with much or with little, the thing is, learn to be content. And if you're not content and always wanting more, then you're just going to be empty and you're going to be dissatisfied and you're always going to be frustrated. And so there's a lot of Christians even, because we live in a society that says that you're not going to be happy unless you have these things. Do you realize that there's about 100 hours of thought, I've read this statistic, 100 hours of thought that goes into a 30-second commercial? I mean, 100 hours of thoughts of, of those who are very good at trying to, to get a 30-second message in to you will not be happy or satisfied unless you have this which we have to offer. 
unless you have this you know, possession, this new electronic device, you know, these clothes, whatever it might be. And Madison Avenue is very good. Now, I see some of the commercials sometimes, and I think, really, 100 hours went into that dumb commercial? That's the dumbest thing or most vain thing that I ever saw in my life. But they do, and, and they pay people a lot of money to try to get you to buy their thing. Now, here's what we need to, as Christians, to remember, that the Lord desires for us to be content, and I hope that we are. Because if you're not content, if you always buy into the lie of the enemy or the world that if I, you know, the only way I'm going to be happy is if I have more. And listen, folks, hear my heart. Because I'm not saying having things is wrong or sin. But if those things have you and they're a priority in your life and your possessions possess you, then there is a problem. And if you're one in life that you're going to go through life not being content unless I have this new toy, unless I have this thing, and unless I have what my neighbor has, and the Bible warns against that. Matter of fact, Jesus said very specifically to his disciples, beware of covetousness. And, you know, of all the years that I've been a pastor, I've had people come in and talk to me, and they've been brokenhearted over a lot of things, but very, very few people have confessed, you know, that I've been coveting. Because we just live in a society that that's what we do. And, and uh, we want what everybody else has. And we want more of what everybody else has. And don't fall into that trap. Again, there's nothing wrong with having things. There's nothing wrong if you have a Christmas wish. You know, I'd like to have this. But learn to be content. And parents, listen. Very important that you teach your children that. That you teach your children to be content as well. Because if not, then they're going to grow up and they're not going to be satisfied in life and they're always going to be murmuring and complaining. And here's Ahab. He's crying like a baby. He's a spoiled little kid. And we know that um, he's doing it because he's not getting his vegetable garden. And also the thing is that we will go through life moaning and groaning and being miserable. But the second thing that it will lead to if you're not content, if you're always coveting to get what somebody else, you know, uh, has and you want it, here's the thing, it can lead to sin. And that's what we're going to read about here as we continue reading, because here comes Jezebel as we read in verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And in verse 7, then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And so Jezebel says, Exercise your authority. Now get up and go and eat. You're the king. But we're going to see here that really she's the one that's exercising the authority, not Ahab. She has already, as I mentioned to you, killed the prophets of the Lord we saw in chapter 18. And she was wanting to kill Elijah, threatened to kill him in chapter 19. And now she's going to come up with this evil plot, as we read in verse 8. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So here we are seeing this plot that she comes up, Jezebel, 
you get up, quit your crying on your bed, king, and you're going to get it, and I'm going to make sure that you do get that vineyard. So what she does is she writes letters in Ahab's name. She sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders, comes up with this plan, pays off these two you know, scoundrels that are going to bear false witness against Naboth. Even though that he's going to be at this banquet, it's, it's a setup, of course, and he's going to be in a place of honor, and then these two witnesses are going to come and lie, and they're going to say he blasphemed God. It's interesting, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, you need two witnesses to establish or testify against anyone. And then, of course, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, that you could be stoned to death for blasphemy against God. So here is Jezebel. She is so wicked that she only uses the law of God for her evil purposes and to get what she wants and for her husband to be able to get this vegetable garden. So keep in mind here as we continue here in verse 8, even though she wrote the letters, even though she falsified these documents, even though she comes up with this plan and pays these two guys to bear false witness against Naboth, we're going to see that Ahab is going to be held responsible for this evil plot that is carried out as we now read about it in verse 11. So the men of the city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him, and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. And then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. And verse 14, then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And so it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So Jezebel's plan is carried out. She's not there at this banquet, but she knows everything's going to be carried out, and she gets word that Naboth is dead to take possession. Now, one of the things that you might ask that I was thinking about, then why didn't that vineyard pass on to Naboth's sons? He did not want to give it up because of his inheritance. This is going to pass to my sons and to my son's sons. That's the law of God. That's the way it was supposed to be. But you see, it's interesting, if you do a little bit of digging, that in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, it gives us the indication that not only did she have Naboth be put to death, but his sons as well. So there was no inheritance. So she goes to her husband, Hey, they're gone. They're over. Rise up and take possession. And he does. And Ahab does that. He doesn't, you know, there's no record here of, you know, what happened. He knows what his wife did. He knows that she took care of it. And he gets up and he takes possession of this, this vineyard. And it's all his now because Naboth and his sons have been killed. And so verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone down to take possession of it. In verse 19, you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, 
have you murdered and also taken possession. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. In verse 22, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel, and the dog shall eat what whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. So Elijah is sent to Ahab, who was taking possession of this field. And Elijah says, verse 19, notice here that Ahab, you have murdered. Verse 20, you have done evil. That you're responsible for this, Ahab. Even though Jezebel plotted wrote the letter, signed, you know, Ahab's name, you know, carried out the plan, paid these guys off. He was held responsible for it. And I think that this is a very sobering chapter for us men and for us leaders of our home that we are going to be held responsible for what takes place underneath our roofs. And even though he didn't directly participate in this, he has allowed his wife to continue to do her evil things and to kill the sons of the prophet, to go after Elijah, and now to kill an innocent man so he can have a vegetable garden. And here Ahab is being told by the Lord that you are responsible, Ahab. You are the one that has murdered. You're the one that has done this evil thing, and you're the one that's being held responsible. And as I read this, it reminds me that as God has called me as a husband and as a father, that he's also called me to be a leader in my home. And I am to be responsible for the things that take place underneath my roof and my commissioned by God, and I've been ordained by God to make sure. And so have you, guys, that you're leading in a ways in which a godly way. And I pray that none of us would come to that point where there's compromise where we're allowing things in our home that are not pleasing to the Lord, where there is sin that has taken place, where there is evil that is there, that we would be men that would stand up and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And this is going to be a place where the Lord is honored and the Lord is spoken of, and where the things of God are going to be in this home. And you know what, guys? We need to make a stand in that, especially in these days. And the reason that I'm saying this is because I've seen it to where, and I, I've talked to a lot of families over the years that I have been a pastor, and to where, you know, it's kind of like, well, I don't know what's going on downstairs. With my kids, I just kind of turned the other way. And there's drugs being sold out of the house. There's pornography that is widespread being watched. There's drinking and partying that is going on, but I, I just don't, I just, I just ignore it. And I hope and pray for all of us that are leaders in our homes, moms and dads, and particularly you men, 
you husbands and you fathers, that you would stand and you would stand for what is right and that you would guard your homes and that it would be a place where it's honored. The Lord is. And I know that isn't always easy. And I know that there's going to be conflict at times and, and sometimes people don't want confrontation. But you know what? As long as we are living for the Lord and standing for the Lord, there's going to be confrontation against sin and against the world. Ahab, you are held responsible for what went on here in allowing your wife to do this evil thing. And she has continued to do evil things all the way as we have known from chapter 16. And all of a sudden this judgment is being pronounced upon Ahab and his household. Your household is going to be like Jeroboam. And those of you who have been with us in our study know that's not a good thing. And Jezebel, not only is your husband is he end up going to dine in his household, but you as well. And it's going to be messy and it's going to be ugly. You see, here's the thing. You can, in your home, that you can just avoid issues. You can sweep it under the rug. You can try to just hide it, try to ignore it. But one of these times, it's going to blow up. And it's going to come to where it's going to bring serious consequences. And that's why we always want to be ones that we protect our homes, that we talk to our children, that we are parents that, and dads that we are leading and disciplining. You're called to do that. That we are making sure that our homes are places that honor the Lord. Ahab ignored that. The Lord had been showing himself strong on behalf of Ahab, and he ignored that and continued in his wickedness. So now all of a sudden there's going to be you know, this, this you know, judgment that's going to come on. And Ahab, you're a dead man. The dogs are going to lick up your blood and your family is going to be wiped out. And, um, and same with Jezebel. She's going to die a violent death, which we will see in Second Kings chapter 9. But in verse 25, But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. In other words, she was provoking him, inciting him is what it literally means in the Hebrew. And, and what my prayer is for us when it comes to our families, that, you know, husbands and wives, that you would stir each other up to do good works, that you would support each other. And you know what? Our home needs to be a place that honors the Lord and that you would encourage each other in that way. And in this church home, that we would be ones that we provoke each other for good works. That's what the scripture says, provoking one another for good works just encouraging each other to do what is right. When you talk to others, when you talk to a brother or sister, that you want to encourage them to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Here's God's word. This is what he wants you to do. Do what is right and he'll bless it. But if you pursue sin or compromise, you're going to see that, you know, what the scripture says in Galatians chapter 6. Don't be deceived because you're going to reap what you sow. And if you sow to the flesh... Of the flesh you'll reap corruption. If you sow into the spirit, the spirit you're going to reap everlasting life. There is no exception to that. Every single one of us, that's a spiritual law that applies to us. So may we encourage each other for good works. And here she stirred him up for to do evil in verse 26. And he behaved very ab, um, uh, ab, abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. 
Verse 27, so it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and laid in sackcloth and went about mourning. And a word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me because he has humbled himself before me. I will bring the calamity in his days. I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring this calamity on his house. So it's interesting here that Ahab, he's like a dead man walking. Really, he is. And what we're going to see in the next chapter, and we're not going to be able to get to it tonight because there's a lot in the next chapter, the last chapter of 1 Kings. We're going to see that Ahab here, he is sorrowful, isn't he? He humbles himself. He's afraid of God's judgment. But Ahab hasn't really repented. And we're going to see that's obvious in the next chapter because the Lord, once again, is going to bring a word to him and he's going to ignore that word. And here's Ahab, even though he puts on sackcloth and, and he humbles himself, it is the Lord says that, you know what, this calamity, he's going to end up dying, but this calamity is not going to come um, till, you know, uh, on his house um, in his days. It's going to be in the days of his son. Again, speaking of God's grace. But here's the thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That it is worldly sorrow that leads to death. There is a difference between worldly sorrow and true repentance. And Paul's talking to the Corinthians about that. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he's writing about that. He says worldly sorrow just leads to death. In other words, there's a sorrow that, that you're sorry for what you did and the consequences for what you're experiencing, but you're really not repenting. I've had people come up again that I've talked to over the years, and they'll come and they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry this happened. I'm so sorry about this. And we'll talk about it, and you need to turn away from your sin. You need to turn away from that relationship that is sinful. You need to turn away from that sinful act. You need to, to turn away and do what is right. And they'll cry, and they'll be all sorrowful, but they will not truly repent. They're only sorry for the consequences that they're experiencing. And then they will continue in that sin or in that compromise. So there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death, as Paul writes. And you see, if there's just worldly sorrow to where we're sorry for the consequences, but not really desiring to turn away, put our sin away, and to give it up and turn to the Lord, then there's going to be a death that's just going to take place in our hearts and in our souls. But then Paul goes on to say, that godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation not to be regretted. Here's the thing, and there is a godly repentance. That is where you say, Lord, I'm in agreement that this is wrong, and I turn to you, and Lord, help me, because I need your help to put it away and to follow after you, Lord, and you will never, never regret true repentance. You never will regret it. Because it leads to salvation, not just talking about eternal life, but what it's talking about, the full orb of God's blessing. Because God will not bless sin. But he is going to bless the one and help the one who truly humbles themselves, comes to that place of, Lord, I need to turn away and turn to you. You see, sometimes you know, that word repentance is not really used a whole lot in the church today. Matter of fact, there are more pastors that say, I won't use the word sin, and I won't use the word repent. And I think, how sad. Because you can't give the gospel without knowing that I need the gospel, I need Jesus Christ because of sin. There's a problem, a sin problem, and I'm a sinner. 
and needed the Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus came and he spoke of repentance. And I think repentance is a very wonderful thing. I really do. It's not just, you know, an old guy like me standing behind the pulpit, pointing my finger at everybody, you know, and with a snarl on my face saying, you need to repent. No, it is the Lord saying, repent, turn to me. And because of the Lord's goodness and faithfulness and because of his incredible love and grace, we have opportunity to turn to him and just experience, again, his love and his grace and his forgiveness to the fullness that he has for you and for me. And you will never regret it. You will never regret it. So as we get ready, and we're going to end here tonight, as we get ready to come to the communion table, and as you will come up and as you will take the communion elements and go back to your seats and remember that communion is remembering Jesus as he established the new covenant. He said, take this, this bread, which represents my body, which is broken for you, and, and drink of the cup. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sin. And as we sit and we'll hold those elements, that we know that as we do it in remembrance of him, realizing that Jesus went to the cross for our sins and bore our sins upon himself. So we come with, with seriousness and with awe and wonder of what Jesus has done. And as we've been talking about in 1 John, that John said that we are to walk in the light and keep his commandments and love his brother. He's been talking about all those things. And here's the thing I pray that all of us would remember. The Lord didn't bring us out of the darkness into the light, just as Peter would write in his epistle, so that we can continue in darkness. Some of us, before we came to Christ, we knew what darkness was about. And we don't have to live in that anymore. Or be enslaved to the flesh or to sin. But as we're going to see, even as we're going to talk about this Sunday, that the Lord not only has he delivered us, that is forgiveness of sin, but also he desires to empower us so we don't, we don't have to be enslaved to sin. And tonight, if there's anything really that is in your life that maybe you're sorry for the consequences but really you haven't given it to the Lord and said, Lord, I need to turn away and give this up. Maybe in an attitude of the heart. Maybe it's a sin you're struggling with. Whatever it might be. And remember how the Lord died for you because of his love for you and how he desires to bless you. And as you come into true repentance, as Paul writes, that you will never regret it. You will never regret it. But experience the fullness of of joy that the Lord has for you in your life as you just walk with him. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time and be able to be in this chapter and be reminded of these things that are so important. We see a story of man who rebelled against you and Lord, your word and your goodness and provision and continued to. And his house was one that was full of evil. And so Lord, may we learn tonight that first of all, that we are so blessed. May we as Christians, may we just learn to be content. 